True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. A young woman is working to build her life back up after struggling with some of the challenges that often come with early adulthood. Her family is proud of the improvements she's made and excited to witness her growth. And then they come home one day, and she's gone. Days, weeks, and years creep by, and then a phone call comes out of the blue. And then, devastating and terrifying silence. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 42, the disappearance of Desiree Reed. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Annette Hubschler and Nelia. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. It makes a huge difference and I really appreciate it. Patreon supporters get a shout out in the episode directly after their sign up and they get an exclusive Patreon episode every month. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or through a once-off donation on PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to help keep the show growing and improving. On a quick note before I get into the episode, thanks to your amazing support, True Crime South Africa has been nominated for an International Podcast Award in the Best True Crime category. I would really appreciate your vote for the award, which is open until the 6th of November. I'll leave the link to the voting platform in the show notes, and it's also on all of our social media platforms. The case I'm covering today appeared in the same Heisgenuit article that Eugene Zane Null's case did, which I covered in episode 38. But I'd heard about it long before that. As with many missing person cases, Around the anniversary of Desiree's disappearance, newspapers and magazines will often cover the case, and I've seen it in a few publications over the years. The publicity is always spearheaded by one person, though. Desiree's sister, Janet. Janet has fought tirelessly through the years to keep her sister's face in the public eye at significant personal cost. This case is not just about a missing person. It's also about that concept I call the invisible victims. People who, for some reason, seem less worthy of justice in the eyes of some, mostly due to circumstances they can't control. Think about all the mistakes you've made in your life. Now imagine that you didn't get the chance to correct those mistakes, and instead they've caused you to become invisible in the eyes of the authorities. And when you need it most, you and your family are denied the help you deserve. 
Let's get into episode 42, The Disappearance of Desiree Reed. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Although there are a few articles about Desiree's disappearance, my greatest source of information in this case came from Desiree's sister, Janet. Despite it probably being one of the most difficult things she's had to do, Janet took the time to type up the entire story of her and her sister's childhood and the circumstances around Desiree's disappearance so that I could introduce you to her sister, who she loves and misses terribly. Janet was two years old when, on the 24th of July 1979, her sister Desiree was born in Mpangeni, KwaZulu-Natal. The girls lived in Richards Bay with their mother, Janetta, and their father. In her retelling of their story, Janet is frank about their childhood, explaining that their father was an alcoholic and unfaithful to their mother on many occasions. Janet says that her mother, who is soft-hearted and kind, would do her best to keep things running on her own when her husband disappeared on drinking binges, but she eventually discovered that he was having an affair with a woman in Richards Bay and decided to leave and return with her girls to Johannesburg, where she'd be closer to family. Janet recalls that not long after they'd moved away from their father, he followed them to Johannesburg, saying that he changed and wanted to reunite with the family. He went into a rehabilitation program, and Janet says that although things were looking up for a while, her father soon relapsed, and when she was seven years old and Desiree was five, their parents divorced. As is often the case with situations like this, Janet recalls her mother taking her father back on several occasions after the divorce, desperately trying to make it work. This cycle continued throughout the girls' primary school years, until eventually when they were in high school, Janetta broke ties with their father completely. Janet recalls life for her single mother being particularly challenging, as she'd never learned to drive. Their father, she says, didn't want her to, as he preferred her relying on him. Finances were always a problem for the family, and she says that her mom did her best to provide everything that she could for the sisters, despite not receiving any maintenance for them. Desiree was an excellent student. She excelled academically in primary school and was appointed as a prefect. She struggled significantly with their father leaving for good, though, and always wished that he would come back to live with them. When the separation of their parents was final, Desiree's behaviour and schoolwork began to decline. Their mother eventually met someone new, and this further frustrated Desiree, as she refused to accept this new man into their lives. It was at this point that Janet says Desiree was so unhappy at home that she decided to go live with their father. That did not last long, though, and Desiree returned. 
My heart breaks for Desiree when I think about the situation. As a child, when your parents divorce, you still want to have a relationship with both parents, and it can often be easy to blame one for the absence of the other and look past the truth of the matter. I think Desiree was trying so hard to hold on to her father and was so angry that there was a new man in her mom's life that her attempt to live with him was probably her way of just holding on to what she thought she'd lost. Her brief time with him seems to prove that her attempts were futile, and she may well have realised that her parents had divorced for a very good reason. When Desiree returned to live with her mom and sister, it soon became evident that her challenges were far worse than anyone had known. Desiree had started smoking dacha with her friends, and had made multiple attempts to take her own life. Today we know that marijuana is helpful for a wide range of physical illnesses. For some, it's also helpful with anxiety. But something that we're still learning is that it also interacts very differently with different people, as does any other substance. Some people who suffer from depression and anxiety get great relief from using CBD or THC products. But many see opposite results, with the marijuana use worsening their depression and anxiety. For many, the teenage years are also a time when underlying mental health issues come to the fore, and when that is compounded by a challenging home life and the normal stresses of being a teenager, it can be very easy to become psychologically dependent on a substance. Addiction can also be genetic, and the fact that Desiree started to display risk-taking and self-harming behaviours very likely points to this addictive gene having been passed down from her father. On discovering the challenges that Desiree was dealing with, her mother took action and got her help. She booked her into an outpatient rehab program, where she also received counselling. Despite the huge cost involved, Janetta also arranged for her daughter to see a private therapist to help her work through her issues. Desiree seemed to be improving, and when she was 16, she decided that she didn't want to attend school anymore and dropped out. She was able to get a job at a local engineering firm, though, and for a while, things were going well for the young woman. Janet says that the next turning point in Desiree's life came when their cousin, who was a year older than Desiree, decided to run away from home and she and a friend went to Durban. She called Desiree and invited her to join them. Likely dreaming of a fresh start in the coastal city and endless fun with her cousin, Desiree quit her job and moved to Durban. She kept in touch with her mother and sister, and soon her mom decided to visit her in Durban. It was quite evident to Janetta that things were not going well with Desiree, and the Durban dream had not been all it was cracked up to be. While there, Janetta bought a train ticket for her daughter and sent her back to Johannesburg. Back in Joburg, Desiree seemed rejuvenated and excited to rebuild her life. She was able to get a job at a company that prepared vegetables for the airlines. While working at this company, 
Desiree met a man whose father owned a business next door to her employer. For considerations of privacy, we'll call him Al. It wasn't long before they were in a relationship, and Desiree moved in with Al. On his 21st birthday, he proposed to Desiree, and they were engaged. Janetta and Janet felt like Desiree was eventually on the right track. She seemed very happy and was doing well at work and living a healthy life. Then they started noticing that Desiree was losing a lot of weight. She also underwent a major behaviour change and quite suddenly quit her job. Desiree announced that she and Al were going on a holiday to the south coast and she invited her mom to join them. They'd only been there for a few days when Desiree suddenly became very ill and had to be hospitalised. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her and she declined blood tests. She was stabilised and discharged and everyone returned home to Johannesburg. Desiree's mom knew that something was very wrong though and despite Desiree's insistence that she was fine she pushed to find answers. Her mom and sister thought that she may be suffering from anorexia as she was so painfully thin and they devised a plan to get her into hospital. Janet recalls that Desiree was not happy with their plan but agreed to go. At the hospital the frightening truth was revealed. Desiree's fiancé was addicted to crack cocaine and she had started using the drug with him. Despite this revelation, she declined treatment and instead left with Al to move in with his mother in Turfantine. In 1999, an IOL article stated that crack cocaine was, at the time, the most dangerous and addictive drug available on the SA market. The drug first surfaced in New York in 1984, and through tourists and drug couriers, started being widely available in South Africa in 1994, when apartheid fell and more people started visiting the country. The drug is a combination of cocaine, which is cooked with bicarbonate and ammonia, to form crystals or rocks of cocaine. This is done so that the drug can be smoked, which gives a faster and more intense high. Long-term users will often develop tooth decay and blackening of their teeth, as ammonia eats away the enamel on the teeth. The first use of crack cocaine produces such a euphoric high that the addiction almost always forms from the user trying to chase that first high and never achieving it again, as their body becomes more and more accustomed to the drug. While there are physical withdrawal effects from crack cocaine, the addiction is often seen as psychological, as users will eventually plummet into a deep depression if they haven't used in a while, and they continue using to avoid this. For someone who already struggled with mental illness, it's a disaster. Active crack cocaine users will often experience serious paranoia and delusions, and this has been known to end in suicide and murder when they believe they're at risk from some unseen force. Rehabilitation from the drug almost always needs to be done under care 
to ensure that withdrawal symptoms are managed. The drug has a devastating effect on addicts across the board, and the knowledge that Desiree had been using it explains her sudden weight loss and erratic behavior. Her mom and sister were terrified for her and were still thinking of ways that they could get her out of her situation when one night, without notice or explanation, Al arrived at Jeanette's house and dropped Desiree off. He brought all her belongings with her and simply left her there without a word. Now separated from her fiancé, Janet says that Desiree went on a downward spiral. She would disappear for days at a time without a word, and her mom was very sure that she was still using drugs. The family managed to get Desiree into a rehab centre in Pretoria, and she was a patient there for several weeks. She completed her programme in December 1999, and upon her release, the family went on holiday for Christmas. When they returned in January, Desiree was going to start looking for a job. On the 28th of January 2000, Janetta left Desiree asleep in her bed while she went grocery shopping. Janet was living on her own by then and had arranged to meet her mother and sister at their home for lunch. When Janet arrived at noon, the front door was unlocked, but there was no one home. When her mom got home, Janet realized that she also didn't know where Desiree was. Due to her habit of breaking away for a few days at a time, the family were not immediately alarmed. They even thought that she may have just gone to visit her dad for a while, as she still had contact with him. They soon started to contact Desiree's friends, but no one had seen her either. It must be kept in mind that this was a time before cell phones. Some had house phones, but the family were making all of these calls from public telephone boxes, also called tiki boxes, back in the day. Only Desiree had her father's contact details at that point, and due to the technological challenges of the time, they were unable to track her father down to confirm whether Desiree was with him or not. Quite by chance, weeks after Desiree's disappearance, they bumped into her father in town, and it became very clear that she was not with him. In fact, he said he hadn't seen or heard from her in a very long time. On hearing this news, Desiree's mom broke down. She would eventually be admitted to the psychiatric ward of Glenwood Hospital, as she simply could not deal with the devastating knowledge that her youngest child was nowhere to be found. Having exhausted every possible location for Desiree, a nurse at the hospital told Janetta that she would arrange for her husband, who was a policeman at Benoni Police Station, to open a missing persons case. Although this was a great first step, it was also a bit of a non-step. Because Desiree was an addict, and in the minds of investigators, there was a good chance she was off somewhere on a bench and would resurface when she was ready. I'm starting to hear this refrain so much in missing person cases that I feel like I'm repeating myself. For one reason or another, police will hold off on throwing too many resources at a case 
unless there's clear evidence that the person is in danger. And if I'm honest, in the case of adults, I can understand it to a certain extent. The problem comes in when, it, when even initial inquiries are not done, and the true circumstances of a person's disappearance are not ascertained in those early days. I can understand not sending out an enormous search party for someone who may have left of their own accord, but surely a bit of legwork can be done. I also know that other police services handle missing persons cases the same way that South Africa does, with this sort of wait-and-see mentality. But I also know that there are many police services who see any missing persons case as an act of inquiry from day one until they ascertain the whereabouts of the person. The problem in my mind with not doing just that initial work is that months and years later, when it becomes clear that the person has very likely met with foul play, none of these leads are there anymore. People move, they forget, their memories get impacted, especially when you're dealing with some witnesses who may be using drugs. Janet says that she doesn't believe any of Desiree's friends or her ex-fiancé were interviewed by police. She says that Desiree's missing person poster appeared in the SAPS database for a while, and then it just disappeared. When she followed up, she was told that the case was closed. Now, I've learned throughout my time doing this podcast that when police say a case has been closed... It doesn't necessarily mean it's been solved. Cases will be closed when all leads have been tracked down and the investigating officer feels there's no more viable evidence. The file is not necessarily destroyed, but it's filed away. Why? Because investigating officers are under a huge amount of pressure to do exactly that. They have new cases coming in all the time, and they are measured by the number of cases they satisfactorily investigate, not the number of cases they solve. Essentially, that case should still technically be open if new leads were to come in. But Janet would find years later that when private investigator Wendy Pascoe came on board, she had to open a whole new case with the SAPS. For three years, Desiree's sister and mom did their best to stay hopeful. And then, in 2003, it seemed like that hope would be rewarded. Janet's aunt had passed away in 2003, and the next week, a phone rang in her uncle's house. When he answered, the woman on the line asked to speak to his wife by name. He didn't recognise the woman's voice, so instead of explaining that she'd passed away, he said that she wasn't there. The woman said she'd call back later. When the woman did call back, she haltingly told him that it was Desiree calling. Her uncle then told her that her aunt had passed away the week before, and Desiree burst into tears. She told her uncle that she was pregnant with twins, and inquired about her sister, and whether she'd been married yet or had children. As soon as Desiree's uncle hung up the phone with her, he called her mom at work. Her mother was dumbfounded, 
but clearly excited that there was the possibility that Desiree was alive and well. She called Janet to collect her and take her to her uncle's house, in case Desiree phoned again. What they couldn't have known was that as mother and daughter were pulling out of the parking lot of Janetta's work, heading over to her uncle's house, the phone in Janetta's office was ringing. It was Desiree. The receptionist answered, took a message, but Desiree did not leave a telephone number. She did not call back there or to the uncle's house again. A little while later, she had called her other aunt and had a brief conversation with her. She told her that she had miscarried the twins that she was carrying and that she was living in Seapoint, Cape Town. That was the last time anyone ever heard from Desiree Reed. On hearing that Desiree had mentioned a location, Janet started calling all of the public hospitals in the area, hoping to find one that had treated a, a woman who'd miscarried twins. She had no luck. Despite their difficult relationship with her father, Janet asked him if he'd be willing to fly to Cape Town and look for Desiree. He agreed, and Desiree's mom paid all the costs for him to go there. Despite scouring the town with flyers and asking as many questions as he could, he turned up no trace of Desiree. Whether coincidentally or not, a little while later, Al, Desiree's ex-fiancé, arrived at Janetta's workplace. He was very intoxicated and in an emotional state, talking about the fact that Desiree was missing and saying that it was his fault for introducing her to crack cocaine. In 2003, Janet got married. The place that would have been held by her sister, empty. The following year, when she and her husband moved into a house, they invited her mom to come and live with them. It took some convincing, as Jeanetta felt like she'd be abandoning all hope of Desiree coming back, because she'd be leaving the last place she had known them to live. Even after Desiree disappeared, and while Jeanetta was still living in the old townhouse, if she had to go out, she would leave a note on the door for Desiree, telling her when she'd be back, just in case her youngest daughter found her way home. Can you even imagine that? Every time you pop out to the shop, you feel compelled to write a note to your daughter, who's been missing for four years at that point, just in case she comes home and you aren't there. I cannot imagine the level of pain and desperation that is within a mother that feels the need to do that. Little did she know that 16 years later, She'd still be in the same circle of desperation. Janet has two children who are now 12 and 15. She says that her daughter reminds her of Desiree. She's a girly girl, she says, just like the aunt she never knew. Even though the children have never met their mother's sister, Desiree's presence is still very much felt in their home. Every year on her birthday, the family lights a candle for her. And yes, it's now 2020, and Desiree Reed is still missing. Her presence is not just felt by commemoration, though. 
but also through the negative ripples that have been sent through the decades and still touch everyone that loves her, even today. In 2007, Janetta was diagnosed with breast cancer, which she thankfully was able to survive. But in 2013, her mental health deteriorated badly and she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The psychiatrist treating her upon hearing of the terrible ordeal both women had been suffering for the last two decades recommended that they both receive treatment to help deal with their stalled feelings of loss. One therapist recommended that they have a memorial service for Desiree in order to try and provide them with some sense of closure. Janetta and Janet, though, don't feel like they can do that. To have a memorial service for them would be like admitting that they have just given up hope. And hope is the only thing they have left. In the ensuing years, Janet has done everything she can think of to find Desiree. She's taken up the assistance of those that have offered it, including Wendy Pascoe and Michael Fenter from Sassy. She's also pushed to have as many articles written about her sister as possible, and the family appeared on the SABC program Kumbulu Kaya, Come Home. Janet also started a Facebook group for her sister's case, and as is sadly often the case, she's been stalked and harassed by these complete numbnuts who think that scamming and harassing families is a great idea. And then there are those who have seen fit to define the importance of their search by the fact that Desiree had a drug addiction, like somehow she's not important enough to look for because she made a terrible mistake and got hooked on a substance designed to draw you in and keep you there. And this is something that I often see on missing person groups all over the world. Someone will post a less than flattering picture of a missing person, maybe even a mugshot, because sometimes that's all there is, and someone will ask if they were on drugs, or the family will openly admit that the person had a drug problem, and it's all downhill from there. Now I can only imagine that the people judging Desiree and her family have never had a loved one in the grips of addiction, because if they had, they would have a very different opinion. Having a loved one that is an addict is like watching someone commit suicide in increments, except it's not just their body they're killing, but who they are as people too. Addicts will lie to you and steal from you and sometimes even physically abuse you. But when they are someone you love, that takes on a completely different context. The desperation of watching someone you love throw their lives in the toilet is mind-blowingly painful. And sometimes you just have to walk away for your own mental health. But behind the wild eyes, lies and track marks is still your sister or your brother or your child. And when they go missing, you still want to know where they are. And they still deserve to be found. And their family definitely does not deserve the judgments and dismissive comments of people who have not had that type of horror visited upon their door. Yet. 
because the scourge of drug addiction touches every level of society. So while you sit there with your nose in the air, dismissing the importance of this missing person, be 100% sure that you'll never be touched by similar circumstances. Because, heaven forbid, you might have to ask people for help finding your loved one. The fact that Desiree Reed had been addicted to crack cocaine in the months before her disappearance is only relevant to the course of the investigation. It is relevant in that it could give a police investigation, if only there was one, a direction to look in initially. It could give police places to look and people to talk to, but that is the only relevance. Desiree's drug use does not define her importance as a human being. Because if making a mistake equated to how much we deserve justice, none of us would deserve any. So what could have happened to Desiree Reed? Well, her uncle is 100% sure that it was her on the phone in 2003, and the multiple phone calls that day seems to confirm that it was. So we know that foul play did not befall her on the day she disappeared. Was she really in Seapoint? That remains to be seen. I can't see any reason why she would lie about that. And if she'd wanted to go somewhere where she could continue on with her chosen activities, it would make sense to go as far as possible. Seapoint is a nice little place, but like many places, it also has a darker underbelly and that includes a well-established drug scene. I've sent Desiree's picture to several Seapoint groups in the hope that someone who may have lived there in 2003 will recognise her. There has been absolutely no movement on Desiree's ID number in the last 20 years. If she's still alive and simply doesn't wish to have contact with her family, one would think that somewhere she would have still had to have used her ID. Was Desiree lured to Cape Town under false pretenses and maybe trafficked? If she was, the 2003 call seemed strange to me. The final possibility is, of course, the one that no one wants to think about. Has Desiree passed away and remained unidentified all of these years? On her last inquiry about this line of investigation, Janet was told that she would have to visit every morgue in the country and go through a folder with pictures of unidentified deceased people. Other families of missing people have been able to submit their DNA to the database, though, so that's something we'll look into as an option here as well. In describing her sister, Janet had the following to say, Quote, now what you need to understand about Desiree is, she's a soft person with a kind heart. I sometimes think that she didn't have a very strong personality, as she was easily convinced to do things, even if she knew they were wrong. She was such a free spirit. She would be here today, and the next thing we would hear, she's somewhere with friends on holiday. And while you're still wondering where she is and how it's going, she would walk into my mom's flat as if she was never gone. We could never tie her down. 
She liked taking risks, and she would be friends with everyone, from the richest people to the hobo down the street. She would interact with everyone and never look down on anyone. She also loved to joke and tease people. She would be the first one up in the morning, with her clothes ready, already from the night before. She was punctual and hated being late for anything. End quote. I find it difficult to believe that Desiree would not have contacted her family in 17 years, especially with the technology we now have, where you can find people you went to nursery school with if you want to. All Desiree would have to do is Google her own name. That's it. And she would be able to find her way home. Although the probability that she would put her family through this is very slim. I have also learned not to judge a book by its cover. And in the right circumstances, with the right amounts of coercive control or other influence, anything is possible. So I'm going to talk to Desiree like she's alive out there somewhere right now, listening to this. Desiree, your sister and mother love you. They miss you. And you being missing has defined their life for two decades. Maybe in the beginning you just needed some space. And maybe every year after that it got harder and harder to make contact. If you're ashamed of how your life has turned out, they don't care. They don't care what you are or what you've done. They just want to know that you're safe. And if you're not Desiree, but you are someone that knows where she is or what happened to her, just tell someone, please. Don't make this family go through another decade without knowing where she is. It's just unnecessary and it's inhumane to know and keep it to yourself when there are so many ways you could just pass the information on without incriminating yourself. The more I cover missing person cases, the more I start to realize what a huge problem we have in this country. We seem to have so few tools to solve cases like this. Private investigators only go so far, and then they're just stonewalled by the police. Why? I don't understand. Another thing I've realized is that we desperately need an organization that helps guide families of missing people because as Alicia Tizen, friend and champion of Missing Dawn Byrne, put it, it's a no-man's land. Trying to muddle your way through these waters is difficult enough with police's help. But what happens when they're not actively involved? Families have to try and understand the system and figure out what tools are available to them with no help or guidance. It's just so unfair. Desiree Reed was 20 years old when she went missing. She was a kid, really, even though legally she was an adult. What the heck did any of us know when we were 20? Today she would be 41, a woman, old enough to know better, old enough to reach out and change the course of the next 20 years for those who love her because that is still in present tense. 
In fact, everything about Desiree is in the present tense for those who seek answers about her disappearance. In their minds, she is alive and 20 years old and smiling and laughing and being the free spirit she was. It pains me to think that there is someone, maybe more than one person, out there that holds the key to this mystery. They can either confirm that present tense or give her family a painful but necessary dose of reality. I found a quote on the group that Janet set up for her sister, which I think is a fitting way to end this episode. Because you never think that the last time is the last time. You think there'll be more. You think you'll have forever. But you don't. Thank you for listening to episode 42, The Disappearance of Desiree Reed. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next week with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>